Let's pray together. Father, we would pray what we just sang, that you would not pass us by. And Lord, we pray that through your word this morning, you would teach us to trust your holy, wise, and powerful hand. And Lord, we pray that you would give us an expectant, joyful, confident faith that you are working all things together for good for those who love you, who are called according to your purpose. Lord, we pray that you would make these truths like a bedrock foundation and a pillar of support in our hearts so that if the heavens fall and the earth gives way, we will be able to be still and know that you are God. And we ask this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. I would invite you to open this morning to Genesis chapter 42, and we'll be looking at the next installment of the Joseph story. And as you turn there, I just want to put a couple of thoughts into your mind that I think relate to the big idea that the Lord means for us to take out of this passage as we, as we understand what's going on in the text, in Joseph's life, here's what I think the Lord wants his people uh, to know. So the first part of it is Romans 8.28, what I just prayed. God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That's the first part that I think Moses means for his audience to learn from Genesis 42 as it contributes to the broader story he's telling in the book of Genesis. The second part is related to the doctrine of God's providence. And, uh, you know, this has been an emotional weekend for uh, our family. We dropped our oldest son, Jake, off at Moorhead State University for the Governor's Scholar Program yesterday. So uh, my wife and I have been, um, uh, you know, feeling this deeply and shedding no few tears. And I can remember when Jake was small on Wednesday nights at church as we would catechize the children. And I can remember Richard Fields teaching, he was a friend of mine in Houston that we went to church with, teaching the kids the question and answer uh, in the catechism, what are God's acts of providence? That's the question. The answer is, um, God's acts of providence are the holy, wise, and powerful acts by which he preserves and governs all his creatures and all their actions. That's what God is doing in the world right now. That's what God is doing in Genesis 42. And what we're going to see is the way the characters in the narrative, I think one of them, maybe a couple of them, are aware of these things and confident of these things. Others in the narrative should be, but are not. And the question for us is, where are we going to be? Are we going to be with Joseph and Judah, confident, I think, that God is working all to good, 
confident that God is providentially going to sustain his people? Or are we going to be like Jacob and the other brothers who, frankly, seem to have lost the plot? They don't seem to know what God is up to or what is going on in the world. So with that bit of an introduction, let me invite you to look with me at Genesis 42. And uh, we'll just look first at these first six verses of the chapter where um, we see the brothers go from being with Jacob up in Canaan to being with Joseph down in Egypt. And you'll notice, if you're looking at the ESV like I am, that the ESV puts a paragraph break after verse 5, but I'm inclined to think that the break should actually come after verse 6, because uh, verse 1 says, when Jacob learned, and you may have a translation that says when Jacob saw, and then verse 7 says, Joseph saw. So I think those are kind of our two turning points. First, Jacob sees in verse 1. And then Joseph sees in verse 7. So let's look at these first six verses. Verse 1. When Jacob saw that there was grain for sale in Egypt. Now just to remind you of what's going on in the context. The Pharaoh has had these two dreams, right? And in the first dream, he saw these seven cows that were fat and healthy and well-fed. And then they were followed by seven lean and ugly cows. And the seven lean and ugly cows ate up the fat cows. And then he had the same dream with reference to like stalks of grain. And Joseph interpreted the dreams. And he told Pharaoh, there's going to be seven years of plenty. And the land is going to bear lots and lots of of good produce. And those are going to be followed by seven years of famine. And now the seven years of famine have begun to come. And this famine in the ancient world... I think, really hard for us to get our heads around. We're talking about no food anywhere. The only place there is food is in the storehouses of Egypt because Joseph made provision during the years of plenty. That is the only place you can find food. So you can't go down the street to Kroger or the Walmart neighborhood market or, you know, there's no Costco, there's no Sam's Club. There is no place to get food unless you go down to Egypt to buy it from Joseph. And that's what Jacob comes to understand. He sees that there's grain for sale in Egypt. And so he says to his sons here at the end of verse 1, why do you look at one another? You you guys are not doing anything helpful. And he said, behold, I've heard that there's grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there. And then listen to these words, that we may live and not die. That phrase, that we may live and not die, is going to resonate through this chapter and then on into coming chapters. So this is a life and death situation. If they don't go down to Egypt and get grain from Joseph, they're going to die in the famine. They are not going to have food that they need to eat and live. So, uh, verse 3, 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. And then look at verse 4. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. We've seen this before, haven't we? Back in chapter 37, Jacob sent 10 of his sons out to shepherd. And he kept Joseph back with him. And then he sent Joseph to check on them. 
And we read in Genesis 37 how it was obvious to everybody that Joseph was the favorite. Well, Jacob doesn't seem to have learned anything about fatherhood. He, he has not changed any of his ways. He is still favoring the child of his beloved Rachel. Joseph is gone, and Jacob is still show, showing favoritism to, to the one son of Rachel that he's got left, to Benjamin. So I think here that Jacob, already right here, Jacob has lost the plot. Jacob is not thinking in, in these terms, which I think it would be good for him to think in these terms. Genesis 1.28, God commanded Adam to be fruitful and multiply. And look at how God has made me fruitful and multiplied me with these, 10, these 11 sons that I have. Not just this one. Down at the end of the, end of the chapter, down in, in uh, look, look down at verse 38. Jacob says to Reuben, my son shall, note, my son. Wait a minute, Jacob, you got 11 sons. And Jacob is thinking in terms of my son, singular, as though that's the only son he has. My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. No, he's not. You got 11 sons. Now, let me make explicit for you how I'm, how I'm commending that Jacob think. The Bible should inform his thinking. Genesis 1.28, God says, be fruit. God blessed them the man and the woman, and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. And I'm telling you, that should build how Jacob operates in his brain. And it's not. What has, what has become operative in Jacob's brain is, I like this one woman better than the other one, and so I prefer her children and them alone. And there's no basis for that in the Scriptures. So, Here's your first application point from this sermon. You must, you must let the Bible build your brain. You must think the way the Bible teaches you to think. Jacob should be thinking not just Genesis 1.28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. He should also be thinking in terms of Genesis 3.15. God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And he, the singular seed of the serpent, will bruise your head and you will crush his heel. Jacob should be thinking, I'm in the line of descent of the seed of the serpent. God is going to conquer everything through one of these kids of mine. That's who we are. God is at work saving the world through my line of descent. It's not how he's thinking. He's gotten distracted by his need to survive. I mean, I know there's a famine. Yeah, absolutely. There's, he's got to survive. But as you do what you must do to survive, you can't lose the plot, Jacob. Brothers and sisters, as you do what you must do to survive, and you must do things to survive. You got to work a job. You got to go to the grocery store. You got to do lots of laundry. You got to clean the house. Yeah, there's lots of stuff you got to do. Don't lose the plot in the midst of all that. Don't get distracted from who you are and from what God is doing. Know that God is at work, working all things together for good. And know that God is providentially bringing about good things. This famine is not just to cause Jacob and his sons to suffer. 
This famine is about getting those people down into Egypt so that God can do the work of salvation at the Exodus that is going to prefigure the work of salvation at the cross and, and fund all of the imagery in the New Testament, all of the Exodus imagery in the New Testament. That's what God is ultimately doing. He's, he's bringing about salvation. And all they seem to be able to think about is where they're going to get their next meal. So verse 4, jo Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. And I would just uh, draw your attention again to verse 38. Uh, his brother is dead and he is the only one left if harm should happen to him. Same kind of phrase at the beginning and the end, framing the whole narrative. Verse 5, thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came. So you can imagine, this is the only place in the world there is to get grain. And so there are going to be swarms of people. And Joseph wisely, shrewdly, capably has said to Pharaoh, you're going to have to set up store cities, and you're going to have to put officials over this, and you're going to need one man who's wise and discerning to oversee the whole operation. And Pharaoh, you'll remember, said, where are we going to find anybody as wise and discerning as you? And so Pharaoh puts Joseph over the whole operation. And now, we, in, the, in the previous chapter, look at, look at verse 57 of Genesis 41. All the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain. And, and I mentioned when we looked at that verse how uh, earlier in Genesis we've read about how all the nations are going to be blessed in Abraham and in his seed. Moses has not lost the plot. Readers of Genesis may lose the plot. Jacob and his sons may have lost the plot. Moses has not lost the plot. Moses is telling you, look, I recorded how God said he was going to bless all the earth through Abraham and his seed. Here it is. All the earth is being blessed through the seed of Abraham, Joseph, and there are going to be these hordes of people. And in the midst of all those people, I suspect that Joseph is watching. I suspect that Joseph is looking for these guys so that when they show up, he's there to see them. So we see there in verse 6, uh, I'm sorry, verse 5, Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. And again, I, I suspect that he's had his eyes open and he sees them from afar, probably. And he watches them approach. And look at what they, look at what they do there in verse 6. Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. Joseph has probably put him in. I mean, there are going to be lots of people. And we've read about lots of store cities. But Joseph somehow has positioned himself so that he's there. Look at that next line in verse 6. Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. You can, you can perhaps imagine the scene. It's going to be clear to everyone who's in charge. All of the officials, all of the people, you know, managing the crowds, they all know who Joseph is. And in a, in a, in a couple of uh, pages, we're going to see that we're like two years into the famine. We're, we're near the beginning of the famine. But Joseph, for the last seven years, will have been managing all of the storing up 
And, and everywhere Joseph has gone, God has prospered him. And now, as the famine has begun, Joseph has been overseeing the distribution of all this grain. So you're going to have all these people that show honor to Joseph. You're going to have all these people who realize we owe our lives to Joseph. And all these people coming to buy grain, they owe their lives to Joseph. Because he was able to interpret the dreams. And then he had the wherewithal to, to be ready for what's now happening. And so there is going to be all of this deference, all of this honor, all of this obeisance and, and respect that everybody is showing to Joseph such that when his brothers come before him, they know this is the Lord of all the land. Later in the, in the passage, twice they will talk, they will say to their father Jacob, the Lord of the land spoke harshly to us. So you can imagine the scene as Joseph over all of Egypt and in a way over all the earth, second only to Pharaoh himself, is standing there. And then here come these guys who sold him into slavery. Here come these guys who ripped him forcibly from his father, who clapped a, an iron collar around his neck, we read in Psalm 105, who put shackles on his feet. And we read how when his son Manasseh was born in chapter 41, Verse 51, Joseph called the name of his firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. And I suggested to you that that name Manasseh also has a connotation of forgiveness. Joseph is walking with God. And so Joseph sees these guys. And I think that we see the discerning and understanding character of Joseph that doesn't just give full vent to outrage. It, it doesn't... It, it, there's nothing in Joseph that says, I'm just going to smash these guys now. They sold me into slavery, they're going to pay. That's not what he does. Nothing close to that at all. But they come and they bow themselves before him with their faces to the ground. And again, Moses has not lost the plot. Because Moses told us back in Genesis 37 how Joseph had these dreams. And in these dreams, you remember what happened in those dreams? His brothers come and bow down before him. Now, if you're, if you're keyed into the plot of Genesis, what you learn from that is, okay, God made this, he, he blessed Adam, told him to be fitful and multiply. He made this promise to the serpent that the seed of the woman, and then he's traced the line of descent through the genealogies of Genesis 5 and Genesis 11 down to Abraham. And so we know that the seed of the woman that's going to accomplish salvation is going to descend from Abraham. And, and then we've tracked the descent from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. And now Jacob has these kids and Joseph get these, gets these dreams. Surely he's the one. If you're, if you're tracking the plot of Genesis, that's what you're thinking. So the dreams should be telling you God is going to work salvation through Joseph. But again, the brothers, they're not concerned with that plot. The brothers are just mad that their father favors Joseph over them. And their father just loves Joseph, not because of the dreams, but because he liked Rachel, Joseph's wife. So they've all lost the plot, but Joseph doesn't seem to have lost the plot. Verse 7, 
Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. And again, this is, this is a phrase or, or a statement that reminds us of earlier things that have happened in the book of Genesis. You'll remember that uh, back in chapter 37, when they deceive their father, in Genesis 37, verse 32, they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found, please identify, and that's the same word translated recognized in chapter 42, please recognize whether it is your son's robe or not, and he recognized it, he identified it. So uh, there, there's a, 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 you know, kind of a pointer back uh, to the recognition of the, the coat of many cl- colors that they've dipped in the, in the blood, and then also in Genesis 38, after Judah had deceived, after, sorry, Tamar had deceived Judah, and then she's uh, obviously becoming pregnant. Well, she sends the staff and the, the signet and the cord and the staff uh, to Judah. And she says to him in Genesis 38, uh, verse 25, please identify, please recognize who these are. And then in verse 26, Judah identified them. He recognized them. So we're getting reminders of these earlier passages when Joseph saw his brothers in Genesis 42.7 and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers. It's interesting the way this is worded. It's almost like he's, he's, he's not letting them recognize him. He treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Now, uh, Joseph is going to be shrewd with these guys, and I think what he's doing is he's trying to see what kind of people they've become. And the way, or, or he's, he's trying to see whether, they're the, whether they are still the same kind of people they were. And the way that he's going to go about doing this is he's basically going to set up a situation where they have the opportunity to do the same thing to Benjamin that they did to him. So we read here that he spoke roughly to them, and he says to them in verse 7, where do you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. I mean, you can imagine how frightful this would be. From the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him, verse 9. And Joseph remembered the dreams. So Moses doesn't want us to miss the fact that they've just bowed down to Joseph just like the dreams said they would. Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. Now, this is perfect, isn't it? Because this is the only place there's food. And so why would they be spying? Well, to try to get some of that food on the cheap or, you know, to steal it for themselves or to get it for their government or whatever. He think, he, he's, he's making them think that he's accusing them of coming to spy out the land to try, to try to get the resources of food which everybody needs. You are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land or the vulnerable parts of the land. They said to him, No, my Lord. Your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. Now, Let's hit pause right here, and let's ask ourselves, what would it look like if, if these guys are in this moment and they haven't lost the plot? What would it look like 
for these guys to be trying to do what they need to do to survive and be ready to be something like, I mean, I know, I know the Lord hasn't said to the people of Israel yet, you are, to, you are to be to me a holy people and a priestly nation. But if we were to take those terms and we were to say, what would it look like for the ten brothers to be a holy people and a priestly family, a priestly tribe to Joseph at this point? In other words, if these guys were godly, I've suggested to you that I think Joseph's prospering in godliness arises from the fact that he has probably meditated on what he's heard about the stories of creation and the promises that God has made from Genesis 1:28 to Genesis 3:15 to Genesis 12:1 through 3 you know God blesses Abraham and then on we could go from there Genesis 15:6 Abraham believed the Lord and it was reckoned to him for righteousness. Genesis 22, 17, and 18. Abraham offers up Isaac and the Lord says, because you've done this, I'm going to bless your seed and your seed will possess the gate of his enemies. And then the promise is passed on to Isaac in Genesis 26. And then it's passed to Jacob and on and on we could go. If these guys are ready in season and out, if they are, as Peter tells his audience, ready to give an answer to anybody that wants to know the hope that is within them, what are they going to say in this moment? I think if they're accused as being spies, it would be appropriate for them to say something like this. Actually, sir, we're not spies. We descend from the first man. We can trace our line of descent all the way back to him. And God made the world very good. And he made the world uh, uh, this glorious garden. There was all the food that anybody would ever want. And the only reason there's a famine in the world right now is because people transgressed against God and God cursed the land. That's why we're having this famine. We, we, we can explain all this to you, see, sir. But God didn't say that he was just going to damn the world to hell. God said he was going to redeem the world. And he's going to do that through a descendant that's going to come through us. God has promised to bless all the nations through our family line. And actually, anybody that, that responds to all this information that we're giving to you the way our forefather Abraham did can be justified before that God. God reckoned it righteousness to Abraham when he believed. And if you'll believe what we're telling you, you can be reckoned righteous. If they're ready to share the gospel, so to speak, in Old Covenant terms, that's what they're going to say. But they're not ready, are they? Are they? All they can do is say, we're honest men. Your servants have never been spies. And, and I just want to urge you and exhort you to be ready. You're all going to be out there in the world doing what you've got to do to survive. Be ready. Be ready with a word of hope. Be ready with good news. Remember who you are. Don't lose the plot and, and then there's this other component of what's wrong with these guys. God revealed himself to them through their brother's dreams. And you remember how they responded to that. Let's kill him. That's how they responded to that. So you can't be ready with a, a word of gospel hope if you reject God's revelation, if you reject the Bible. Joseph's brothers are not ready with a word of gospel hope because they've rejected Joseph and his dreams. We, we have to embrace everything that God reveals in the word. And then, I mean, if they had done that, they could have added, 
you know, we weren't, we weren't ready to receive it at the time, but God gave these dreams to our brother, and those dreams entailed the whole earth bowing down, or, and, and us bowing down to that brother, and that signified that the Lord was going to bring salvation through him somehow. You know, if they said that to Joseph, he reveals himself to them at this moment. Here I am, guys. The dreams have come to pass. Go get Jacob, and the whole thing's over. But they're not ready with gospel hope. They've lost the plot. They've forgotten who they are. They've rejected God's revelation. And so Joseph is setting up this redo of what they did to him with reference to Benjamin. They're protesting at the end of verse 11. We're honest men. We've never been spies. Verse 12, he said to them, No, it is the nakedness or the vulnerability of the land that you have come to see. And they said, Look at how they're, it's almost like they're kind of getting their family history, but not really, you know? Look at what they say. Your servants are 12 brothers. Well, what's the big deal about that? These are the 12 tribes of Israel. That's the big deal about that. But they don't articulate the most essential, most important part of their own identity. You know, the... The most essential, most important part of your identity, if you're here this morning and you're a believer in Jesus, is that you know God. That from eternity past, God set his love on you. And and God chose in his merciful kindness to reveal himself to you and to make you someone through whom he would make himself known. That's your identity. Don't forget it. Don't lose that part of the plot. They said, we, your servants, are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. Well, what's the big deal of that? The big deal of that is that one man in the land of Canaan is the one about whom the Lord said to his mother, the older will serve the younger, designated him as the one through whom the the promise would come. But it's like they're remembering the It's almost like they remember the physical, secular aspects of the story, but they don't have any of the spiritual aspects of the story. It's like they're the people that Jeremiah indicts in Jeremiah 6, verse 10. They have ears, but they can't hear. And the word is a reproach to them. So they hear the word, but they despise it. Why is that? Jeremiah says their ears are uncircumcised. If you're here this morning and you think, well, this is a sorry story. This is a, this is a stupid tale. These are stupid people. I don't know why these people come together to look at this stupid book every Sunday. The word is a reproach to you, and what you need is to have your heart circumcised, your ears circumcised. You need to be born again. You need the Father, by the Spirit, to give you life by the power of Jesus. You need God to use the same power that he used to make the world and to raise Christ from the dead to resurrect your dead heart. And if that happens to you, you will love the Bible. You will hear the Bible and you'll be like, I can't get enough of this book. I I love it when people explain this book. I totally get why everybody comes together on a Sunday morning to to hear these stories. These stories are awesome. If that happens to you, you will love the scriptures and you will feel such joy and gratitude in response to the God who has given you hope. Hope that goes beyond your life. 
hope that is bigger than your sorrows. Hope that enables you in the difficulties of providence, in in things like famines. Hope that enables you to have some sense of what's going on. I don't know exactly how God's going to use this famine, but I'm confident that he is going to use it. I don't know what good God is working, but I'm confident that he's working some good. That's how you'll respond. These guys are not there. We, your servants, are 12 brothers, verse 13, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan, and behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. You notice how they gloss over any component of their own responsibility in the one being no more. Joseph said to them, well, we're going to have to continue with the test because they haven't taken responsibility. It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this, you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you. So if these guys are the same guys they were when they sold Joseph, they're going to be thinking something like, now's our chance to get rid of him too. Because in the same way that Daddy Jacob sent Joseph to check on us, one of us can go get Benjamin and we can explain how Benjamin will spring the rest of us and then we can do away with Benjamin in some kind of way just like we did with Joseph. Bring your brother, verse 16, while you remain confined that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. So he almost puts some self-interest in there too. You need to do this. Verse 17, and he put them all together in custody for three days. So in, in, that, in this passage, in verses 7 through 17, uh, Joseph has recognized his brothers. And, and in the next unit, in verses 18 through 28, Joseph is going to give his brothers unexpected life on the third day. I, I think that it's really curious how this happens. Verse, verse 18, on the third day, you know, they're in custody for three days. It's almost like they're, they're imprisoned for three days, and now they're going to be released on the third day to live. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live. Remember back up in verse 2, that we may live and not die. Now do this and you will live. And then look at this explanation that Joseph puts in there. For I fear God. Joseph, you know, this is, this is, this is almost one of those hints, one of those little clues that somebody that's walking with God might hear and think to themselves, I wonder if more is going on here than I suspect. Because Joseph is, it's like he's using significant technical terminology that they should recognize from their own tradition. I fear God. This is like the Old Testament way of saying, I've been saved. I've been born again. I fear God. It's just a, just a little phrase that Joseph puts out there for anybody that has ears to hear. Verse 15, if you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody. And uh, again, I think that um, Moses has not lost the plot, okay? Moses knows the story that he's told to this point. 
And in the story that Moses has told to this point, we saw another thing that happened on the third day that involved a substitution of the one so that another could live. You know what I'm alluding to? I'm alluding to Genesis 22. When Abraham lifted up his eyes on the third day and saw Mount Moriah. And then he takes his son Isaac up on that mountain and he goes to sacrifice him and the Lord stops him and provides a ram as a substitute. And now on the third day, the other brothers are going to be let go free because the one brother is going to be incarcerated in their place. Now, I'm not suggesting to you that Moses perfectly knows that one day the Lord Jesus is going to be the one who's going to be crucified for the many and then he's going to be resurrected on the third day. I don't think Moses had all of that information. But I think Moses knows these are significant patterns. I think Moses is looking at this and he's going, okay, the Abraham thing happened on the third day and involved a substitute. And now this Joseph thing with his brothers happened on the third day and involves a substitute kind of a situation. And Moses also knows this. He knows what he's lived through at the exodus from Egypt, which entailed Israelites being in captivity, being enriched by the Egyptians, and then going up to the land of promise. That's what this narrative is going to entail. These, these brothers were in prison, and Joseph is about to give them grain and, and provision for the journey and their money in their sacks. And they're going to go up out of Egypt and return to the land of promise. Now, again, I'm not suggesting that Moses perfectly knows everything that's going to happen in the New Testament, but I do think he saw these patterns, and I do think he wrote them down in the way that he did because he thought they were going to be significant. And then there's also the divine author who does know what's going to happen in the New Testament and who is guiding Moses so that as he tells the story, everything is going to fit together perfectly. So, uh, verse 19, Joseph says, If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households, and bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified, and you shall not die. So, uh, that we may live and not die, verse 2. Do this and you will live, verse um, 18. And now in verse 20, you shall not die. And they did so, meaning they agreed with the plan. Verse 21, then they said to one another. Now, at this point, I think that Joseph's shrewdness and his discernment has begun to bear fruit. Jo Joseph has been wise, and he has, he has made these guys suffer a little bit. He's put them in a, a situation where they don't, they don't know what's going to happen uh, to him, and I think he's put enough little indicators in, in, in what he's arranged to remind them of what they did to Joseph, and it's like he's making it so that they realize their guilt, and they understand the gravity of what they've done. So, verse 21, they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. You know, if, if you don't come to the place where you feel what they feel right here, you won't be saved. If you don't come to the place where you know, in truth, we, me included, 
we are guilty. If you don't come to that place, you can't be saved. If, if you think you're not guilty, you can't be saved. But if you come to the place where you know you're guilty, there's good news for you. And, and so they're saying this. Notice how it's worded in verse 21. They said to one another. The, Moses, seemed, he, he doesn't specify who's saying the words, but he, he makes it read as though they're all in agreement now. So you remember in chapter 38, Judah, I suggested, was con- converted when he realized what he had done to his daughter-in-law Tamar, and he said the words, she is more righteous than I. I think Judah's already converted. Now it would seem all the brothers have, have begun to experience the circumcision of the heart. And, and they've all realized the guilt of their sin. In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul. You notice their guilt, it, it's not just self-focused. It's not just, look how bad I am. Look what an awful person I am. It's, we hurt him. We saw the distress of his soul. They're seeing how their sin has hurt other people. You know, sometimes if, if somebody goes to make an apology, but they can't acknowledge the pain that they've caused, or they don't, they don't in any way recognize that they caused distress for another person, they're just kind of like, okay, I'm sorry, get over it. You, you, you sort of suspect, I don't think you feel the guilt of your sin. I don't think you realize really what you've done. But these guys, they're saying, we're guilty. Look at how we harmed Joseph. We saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. So they realize their guilt. They confess their sin to one another. And then, you know, in verse 22, Reuben is going to start talking. And... Um, uh, Reuben has been trying to, to grab power ever since he slept with his father's wife. I think that's what that was about when Reuben went into his father's wife. He's trying to assert himself as the firstborn, as the one who's now lord of the house. And now he's going to start talking again, and he's really doing the same thing. And it's this hypocritical, self-righteous, worthless, unhelpful way of trying to be a leader. I mean, I think that probably all the brothers, once Reuben says what he's got to say, that all the brothers are probably, probably like, Reuben, you should have kept it zipped. Don't talk to us, Reuben. So Reuben says, verse 22, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. Well, Reuben, number one, you're not in position to rebuke us. You've done your own thing with our father's wife. And number two, Reuben, if you really felt that way, why didn't you physically oppose us? Why didn't you do something useful? Why didn't you stay with Joseph or somehow prevent us from selling him into slavery? This self-righteous, hypocritical business that you're throwing at us now is not helping anybody. Verse 23, they did not know. Uh, Reuben is speaking the truth. There is a reckoning for Joseph's blood coming. Verse 23, they did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. So he's using a translator. And Joseph hears all this, and verse 24, he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. 
And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, this, their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? They've got it right that God is at work. God is providentially at work. But as we've seen throughout this, they've forgotten their, their, the, the most essential components of their identity. They've rejected God's revelation, and as a result, they don't know what God is doing. What is this that God has done for us? And, and I would just invite all of us to ask ourselves questions like these. Do we know the Scriptures so well and at such a level that when we see the work of God in our lives, at some level... We understand it. I'm not saying we know everything there is to know. But at some level, we're thinking about our lives in relationship to the Scriptures. And and our thinking about our lives is informed by the Scriptures. If they were there, here's the kind of thing that they could be thinking. You know, Abraham, in Genesis 12, went down into Egypt. And his wife Sarah was taken into captivity by the Pharaoh... And the Pharaoh enriched Abraham. And then God visited plagues on the Pharaoh and liberated Sarah. And they came up out of Egypt and returned to the promised land. We just went down into Egypt. We were taken into captivity. And we've been enriched. We've got all this food now. And our money's been restored to us. And we're going up out of Egypt and returning to the land of promise. I don't know what all God is up to. I don't know what all God is prefiguring here, but the hand of providence is clearly at work in our lives. And again, you see what I'm doing. I'm interpreting what's going on here in light of earlier scripture. And I would, I would just plead with you to do this with your life. To do this, you've got to know the Bible. To do this, you, you've got to be able to, to as, as the author of Hebrews says, discern good from evil. And it, as, as Paul says to Timothy, you've got to be able to rightly divide the word of truth. Well, how do you do that? You walk with God. You think about the scriptures. You meditate on it day and night. You think to yourself, does what's going, in my life, going on in my life correspond to this narrative? And if you know the narrative well enough, you'll probably be in position to say, mm, no, not really. Or, yeah, I'm in the same place that Abraham was. I'm, I'm, I'm in a difficult situation. I'm having to call on the name of the Lord, and I'm going to trust him, just like he had to do when he was called to take Isaac up on that mountain. And I don't know, just like Abraham, I don't know what's going to happen when I get up on that mountain, but I'm confident that we're coming back alive, both of us. That's, that's where Abraham was. I don't know what God is going to do, but he's going to work good for us. These guys are not there. So do you know the scriptures so that you can see the work of God? And then also, notice how um, there in verse 28, at this their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another. You know, 
I think if they, naturally this is frightful, what's happened to them. But I think that if they knew the Abraham story, and if that was so fundamental to who they are, I think mixed with the fear of God, they might be feeling a sense of excitement, anticipation, joy, readiness to praise God. So I, I would invite you to, and listen, I want to I ask this question with as much gentleness as I can. And, and I don't, I'm, not, I'm not denying the pain that we're all going to experience. But do we respond with praise or with fear? And these guys are responding with fear. We want to, we don't, we're human beings, but we want praise to be in there too and gratitude. In the final unit of this passage, in verses 29 through 38, they're going to return to their father Jacob. So they leave Jacob in the first part, um, verse 29 and following, verse 29, when they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan. And they're just going to rehearse what's happened to them. They told him all that had happened to them, saying, the man, the Lord of the land, that's how they refer to their brother, whom they sold into slavery. The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, we're honest men. We've never been spies. We are 12 brothers, sons of our father. One is no more. And the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. And, you know, I think that Jacob ought to be at a place where he says, well, did you tell them the most important things about who you are? Did you tell them about how we descend from Adam? How the line of the seed of the woman comes through us? How the seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent and reopen the way to the Garden of Eden? Did you tell them how God promised to bless all the earth through Abraham? Jacob's not thinking any of those things. And so he's not saying any of those things. In order to disciple our kids, we got to be disciples ourselves. In order to be able to speak the gospel, we got to be living on it ourselves. Verse 33. Then the man, the Lord of the land, there it is again, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go your way. And there's nothing in Jacob that says, Well, this sounds like things that we've seen before about captivity in Egypt and about uh, Isaac, the, the ram being substituted for... There's nothing... Jacob's not... Moses knows the plot. Jacob doesn't seem to. Verse 34... Uh, Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men, and I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. And again, it's fear, not joy. Not like, oh, look, God brought us wealthy out of Egypt just like he brought Abraham wealthy out of Egypt. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. And, you know, I don't want to be too hard on Jacob. But, again, there's, we don't get the note of God's works of providence are his holy, wise, and powerful acts by which he preserves and governs all his creatures and all their actions. And we don't, don't get the note of 
God is working all things together for good. And I think we have gotten those notes in the story of Abraham. The, Abraham suffered terrible things, but Abraham responded to those things with faith, trusting the Lord and obeying the Lord. And, and Jacob doesn't seem to be doing that. Jacob seems to be in despair. You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more and Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. And then here's Reuben again, trying to take leadership. But Reuben's leadership is not, is, is not like Judah's. In, in, in uh, I think, yeah, in the next chapter, Judah is going to offer himself as a pledge. Judah is going to be a self-sacrificial leader. Reuben is ready to sacrifice other people. And that kind of leadership is going to be rejected. Reuben wants to be the leader, but he doesn't want to pledge himself. Verse 37, Reuben said to his father, kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Which is really a dumb thing to say. I'm going to guarantee the safety of your son by pledging the death of my, my son. Wait a minute. Hold up here, Reuben. I want my son to be alive. <laughs> and you're saying kill your own two sons? Why would I trust you? Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. But he said, my son shall not go down with you. And then again, we see this perspective from Jacob that we talked about earlier. For his brother is dead and he is the only one left. Which this kind of statement makes what Judah is going to do in coming chapters all the more glorious. Because Judah hear, hears these words from his father. Judah hears his father say, my son, singular, is dead. And he is the only one left. As if to say, and you guys don't count for anything. And in spite of that, Judah is going to stand before his brother Joseph and say, if you keep Benjamin, it will kill our father. So keep me instead. That, that self-sacrificial Christ-like love is gloriously beautiful. Fear and doubt do not spring from faith, right? Fear and doubt don't come from faith. Fear and doubt come from the anticipation of bad things, the expectation of bad things, not hope and belief that God is going to work good. So again, I, I think that Jacob would have been a better man and he would have done better in all these circumstances had he been, like Joseph, contemplating the stories of creation, remembering and rehearsing the promises that God has made, revisiting and reminding himself of the narratives and, and learning the patterns. And then when these things happen, he's ready to say, we've seen this kind of thing before. What's happening to us is what's happening, happened to the people of God in the past. And the way that God was faithful to them is the way that he's going to be faithful to us. And it's that kind of response that prompts Paul to say this kind of thing in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, where he says, God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of 
power and love and self-control. Where do those things come from? From the teaching of the scriptures. And it's, it's, it's this walking with God and knowing the Bible that enables John to say, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 18, there's no fear in love. But perfect love casts out for fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And you know what's at the bottom of that? Is, is Jesus. It, it's coming to a place where you say, I don't know everything that God is doing. I don't know what good God is working, but I know Jesus. I know Jesus, and I love him, and I trust him, and that's going to give me power and love and self-control. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that if there are those here this morning who came in not thinking that they wanted to follow Jesus, I pray, Lord, that through your word, you will have spoken life to them. And I pray that you would give them a hope that won't let go of them, a hope they can't get away from. And Lord, for those of us who know you, who are trying our best to walk with you, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to embrace your providential guiding and governing of our lives. And help us, Lord, to respond in faith Believing, even if we don't know the good that you're working, believing that you are working good. And Lord, we pray that you would cause your word to dwell richly within us so that we know that our life is hidden with Christ in you. And that when he comes, then our life will be revealed. And so, Lord, help us to set our hearts on things above, not on earthly things. Help us to live not for this life, but for the one to come. And thereby, Lord, make us faithful through all our trials, through all our tribulations, through all our temptations, and through the normalcy of doing what we have to do to survive. Make us those who have salty speech, mouths ready to speak the gospel, and get glory, we pray, from us as we seek to honor you in all things, through Christ and by the Spirit. Amen.